0: Well, good morning. It is both an honor and a privilege to bring God's Word to you today. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to John 3. If you don't have your own copy, there's a Pew Bible in front of you. It's approximately page 615 ish, I think. We're continuing our summer series. There we go. As if you're visiting and trying to sort out who's who, you can look around and see the, the different elders. And as we refer to each other within the elders, I'm the non bearded one. Whether that has anything to do with sanctification, that is up for debate. Uh, the elders take, take some time during the summer, and some of us who don't preach often have the opportunity, so I've been pulled away from the spreadsheets and given this gracious opportunity. If you've found your place and are able, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll read John 3, the first 15 verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Father, we come to you this day and we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your clarity. We are thankful that you bring us life. As we are here today we know it is by no accident nor coincidence that you have brought us together we pray that your word pierces our hearts not that we become smarter or more knowledgeable but we be transformed knowing you following and obeying you for your glory it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I, uh, I have a special gift, many of them actually, but one of them is I can walk around the house and not see the very things that are right in front of me. I, I leave for work early in the morning. No one else is up, and I, I don't know how many times it happens. I'm walking around the house looking for my sunglasses, and about five minutes of looking, I realize that they're on my head. I say this because it happens all too often. I leave in the dark and I I don't want to turn on the lights. I don't want to wake everybody else up. And uh, there's a few things I know I have to take with me. If you're like me, I cannot make it through the day without my cell phone. It, It has all my appointments, email, everything going on for my work. And there'll be mornings I can't find it. And, and there are mornings that I, I grab my cell phone and I turn the flashlight on and I walk around the house looking for my cell phone. Tell me I'm not the only one that does that. There are some things that are hidden in plain sight. And I, I remember uh, the comic strip family circus. Many of y'all remember that. There, there was one that is emblazed in my memory and... I can't remember if it's one of the children or the mom, but they're looking for a piece of paper. And it's the Sunday comic. There's like a bunch of little boxes that go. And looking, and there's this angel sitting on this piece of paper, whatever the mom's frantically looking for. And then the angel says, okay, I'll move. She can find it now. I don't know how theologically accurate that is, but sometimes I I do wonder. I am very good at not seeing what's plainly right in front of me. I won't bring up those. I don't know if you remember the 90s. You'd go to the mall and they'd have those huge pictures with squiggly lines and you'd have to like adjust your eyes and give yourself a headache to see what the picture inside the picture was. I hated those. Those were hard. This, uh, this summer, uh, we've been going through distinctives of the church. And I'm privileged to have this one. It's, it's very plain. It's straightforward. But even as Nicodemus struggled with what was right in front of him, we struggle with what's right in front of us. So we have looked at the centrality of scripture, the, the clarity of gospel, the primacy of preaching, uh, Godward Trinitarian worship, biblical theology, and this week we're looking at the new birth and conversion. And I must confess, it saddens me that we have to call this out as a distinction, but it is. As a human being, you are born with an innate pursuit of victory, accomplishment. You want your life to matter. No one one wakes up and says, you know what, how can I fail today? How can I really mess things up? I think maybe if you watch a cartoon, you may see that or a movie. We want to come to the end of our life knowing we've done well. And today, our purpose is that you must know what you must do to be right before God. We must know this from the Bible. We must look to Scripture to see this. We must see this from the author himself, not from an Americanized curriculum. We've got to be able to distinguish truth, Scripture, from our cultural predispositions from maybe what we've grown up being taught or hearing. Been watching a few movies lately. Some of the elders are still in shock. My wife and I, we, we, we watched movies before we had kids and we have a lot of families here with, with younger children and, and you can probably relate to this that as, as we started growing our family, we would see a movie advertisement and think that'd be fun to watch, but then it really became Watch a movie or two hours of sleep. We'll never get back. So we finally hit the point now. It's like, okay, we'll, we'll watch a few movies. And some of these newer movies, they, there's little tidbits that I've seen, even in movies from, I won't say how far back, but way back when. And you've got this hero on a mission. And there comes a point where the hero comes face-to-face face with the bad guy. And there's, there's this reckoning. And all of a sudden, the bad guy gives different tidbits of information that the hero might have known and the hero questions, am I the bad guy? It made me think that you know sometimes the norms that we know aren't always correct. That's not just in movies, norms, assumptions, predispositions if you will. We have to go back to the scripture and challenge them. This happened in the Reformation. We're mostly familiar with uh, the Reformation, the 95 theses, and Martin Luther, where grace, where favor with God was literally bought with money. and That was normal. Martin Luther challenged that. We see elsewhere in the, the Bible First and Second Chronicles some of the last uh, words of the Old Testament that were written there's often this good king that comes along open up anywhere and you're going to see a bad king came did evil in the sight of the Lord was punished and then there's a good king sprinkled in and what happens usually in most cases cleanses the temple establishes right worship but almost every time the High places are not removed. What are those? That's pagan worship. It's easy for us to read these words in the Scripture and say, why didn't they finish the job? Friends, we have to look out for our own high places. We see it very plainly in some churches and popular Christianity today where there's deconstruction. Let's, let's tear down our faith and rebuild it sounds pretty neat. We hear privilege in the church. You may have heard the cliches growing up, God helps those who help themselves. There are churches out there listening today that that believe that. Or cleanliness is next to godliness. Again, a good principle, but not biblical. And please don't come look at the areas of my house that I'm supposed to clean, because that's far from it. This distinctive of the new birth, it's it's important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand the glory of God and our desperate need of a Savior. And this is apart from anything that we can do on our own, because if we don't recognize the new birth, as Scripture lays it out, there's a danger, and that, that danger is that rather than seeing the glory of God, we will glorify ourselves and diminish Christ. Nicodemus has come to Jesus, and Jesus takes us turns Nicodemus's question on its head, and he gives him four progressions of a new birth. And it's important for us to see that too. We will see his futile striving. We will then see that it is God given life. We will see the Holy Spirit's work. And then your required response. There's a futile striving, God-given life, the Holy Spirit's work, and your response. So looking at the first two verses, Nicodemus comes to him. He's a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, comes to him at night and approaches them with a question and a statement that you're a teacher come from God and no one can do these signs unless you come to him. John wrote this gospel, this letter to to people in the first century and there's a lot there to unpack that they understood but we don't fully see. Nicodemus was a real person. Actual events that happened. Pharisees... If you don't know, they, they were the good guys at a point. Our, our scripture, we don't include the Apocrypha, the events that happened uh, in the 400 years leading up to uh, Jesus' birth and the Gospels. Uh, we don't take them as inspired scripture, but there are historical accounts that happened there. And the Pharisees came about about 300 years before Christ. They were the early reformers. If you've studied history, there's some interesting facts there where the Greeks came in, and there's this funny word called Hellenization. I kind of like to call it Greekification. The Greeks wanted to take their culture and impose it on everybody. And what that meant was eradicating other cultures of their religion and their sacraments. The Pharisees recognized the danger here, and they called themselves the separate ones. They wanted to maintain their culture. But in that pursuit over the years, they became legalist, imposing harsh, sometimes silly rules. At the time that Jesus is here, they're, they're the enforcers of religion. And the ruler of the Jews, that's a name for the Sanhedrin. You've likely heard of them It's like the top 70 dudes in the country. And not only are they lawyers, uh, Pharisees, the aristocracy, uh, Nicodemus is one of the leaders of them. They ruled and judged the land. They, They had the authority to hold court up to the point of capital punishment. The Romans did not give them that. They had a wide rule. They, they could even hold court for Jews that didn't even live there. The Jews, as you know, were scattered. There were Jews in Rome, all over the Roman Empire. They had authority over them as well. We sometimes miss the stature of this man, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus. It's rumored that he was of Maccabean descent, so not a person we talk about much. But think since it's Independence Day weekend. Think George Washington. It's like if he was of George Washington's descent. No concrete evidence there, but it's widely rumored. These Pharisees, they had a almost rabid pursuit of holiness and adherence to rules to have righteousness. Kent Hughes, a commentator, pointed out one of these was they couldn't work on the Sabbath, couldn't do anything that even looked like work on the Sabbath. So men could not tie a knot, even on a rope to lower a bucket into a well to retrieve water. I personally find that's pretty silly. What's even worse is they they found a way around it. Women could tie a knot on their sash. So knowing that women could tie a knot on a sash, they'd have the women tie the knot on the Sabbath to retrieve the water. How crazy is this? This was their pursuit of righteousness. Sadly, we still see shadows of this today. If you buy a major appliance, particularly a refrigerator today, it may come with what's called Sabbath mode. It'll shut down to conserve energy on the Sabbath so that you're not making somebody else work. We talk about chronological snobbery. We have this vantage point from thousands of years that we can look back and say, that's silly, we don't do stuff like that. We, we're more educated, more sophisticated now. But are we? It's kind of a joke in, in Baptist churches that, you know, there's ten commandments in the Old Testament, but we've got a couple that we hold dear. Famous one when I grew up was, guys don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't date girls who do. You've probably heard that. Now I think it's uh, kind of evolved a little bit. Now it's, uh, do you get a tattoo? Marijuana's legal now, is that okay? Are we going to put a fence there? We, we aren't too different. Sadly, it's now it's, some churches actually hold a hard line on vaccinations. Never mind COVID, just vaccinations at all. Or are you really professing Christian if you haven't been to the abortion clinic personally to protest. How often are you at church? Doors are open. Are you there? Oh, we saw you, you, must, you must be one of the good ones. We, we still lean on our own actions to look for our justification. A lot can be said about Nicodemus here. He coming at night and you know there's all kinds of people say well it's an allusion to his fear of the Jews or it's an allegory for the fact that he was in sin. I like what John MacArthur said what it really means is it was night when he came. Um, I I do think there's some truth to the fact that Jesus he was pretty busy during the day lots of crowds around him and for Nicodemus to have a a long dialogue with him it, it required coming at night and it was known that the Pharisees did often hold their internal debates and discussions at night, so it fits. He says, we know you're a teacher, and you do these great things. Nicodemus approaches him from his contemporary worldly perspective. He sees that these signs, you can't do them unless you're from God. Kind of funny, even though later they say he's doing the signs because he's from Beelzebub, the devil. We, we tend to approach God also from our own perspective. I lose count of how many times I get sent an article, and it's challenging. Something we know from the Bible that's plain. New Testament commands. And verses are lifted out of context. They're kind of blended with contemporary. So I said, you know that was, that was in the Old Testament. That was because the Corinthians or uh, that was because the people in Laodicea did a certain thing. It's not really relevant to us. Even though these things are plain to the scripture. It was not safe then and it's not safe now. And Jesus is about to cut them off. We must be careful as we approach Christ and his scripture to approach him from scripture, not from our context or our experience as Nicodemus did. Today our best attempts from the brightest minds can't find truth, the truth of Christ, apart from Christ himself. Try as we might, try as others do, to shed new light on a truth All that men can do apart from Scripture is form a new shade of a same old lie. There's only one truth, and Nicodemus is facing that truth eyeball to eyeball. Nicodemus works very hard to fulfill the law, to obey the law, and Jesus is showing them that this is futile. Jesus Jesus is about to show him that this life that he's looking for can only come from God. So Jesus cuts him off and says, truly, truly. Now, in our language, it's two words, but in the Hebrew, then, that's, that's an exclamation point. We have a hard time translating this, but it's a hard stop. It's a reality check. It's an attention getter. It's a stop right there. We give Nicodemus a hard time, but He's genuinely trying to legitimize Jesus. Jesus, as you might imagine, is an outsider to the culture at this point. Uh, Don't need to read too much of the scripture to see that. Nicodemus recognizes that while there have been people that have come before, uh, this one's a little different. He's trying to extend an olive branch. Nicodemus believed that he and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, if they obeyed God, obeyed all these rules that they would usher in the Messiah, their Messiah, the kingdom that they were looking for would come on their terms. Jesus knows Nicodemus' heart and he goes straight for it. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God born again, birth. Not lifestyle, not ritual, not a checklist, not things to follow, not commands to do in any succession, but birth. Birth is immediate. Now hang on, I know there's some moms here that are saying, wait a minute, it wasn't quite that immediate. In the context of what the Jews are going through, years and decades of trying to fulfill certain things this, this birth analogy, this is a weird one why why the birth analogy well, first of all Nicodemus, the Pharisees, they're trying they're trying to get their country on the right track but birth he had nothing to do with that he has nothing to do with his own birth it takes us back to our chronological snobbery In our culture, in America, we are innovative. We almost, dare I say, idolize our independence and ingenuity. And I'd say in a lot of churches, we're taught that you've got Jesus or an angel on one shoulder casting their vote. You've probably heard this, the devil's on the other. And you've got to cast that deciding vote for Jesus. But Jesus used the analogy of birth, not voting. Is that because... It was so primitive back then, they didn't have a real good established democracy to use that analogy. Jesus was there in the beginning, in Genesis, when we have the words, "Let us make man in our image," that includes Jesus." He was there in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, and I said, "Let us confuse their language." This Jesus, creator, creator of you, creator of me, creator of every person and everything, even creator of language, he used this birth analogy. Did did he use a bad analogy? This may be hard for some folks, but if you believe that Jesus cast his vote, the devil cast his, and you've got to cast the deciding vote, if you believe that, as the song goes, I've decided to follow Jesus, and it was my decision, you've got to be honest enough to stare at this scripture and say that either Jesus used a bad analogy or recognize it as God who gives us birth. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Nicodemus, who he and the Pharisees have been working very hard to usher in peace has to be startled by this. Think about your parents for just a second. What did you do to convince them to give birth to you? Kind of sounds preposterous, doesn't it? Of course, you did nothing. And here, Jesus is making that exact point. Birth is making something new. Not an improved version of yourself, but something entirely new. The word conversion means moved to a new direction. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul tells us anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. And There may be a time of learning. There may be a time where you're kind of sorting through all these thoughts. You're reading this. Nicodemus is going through this. Like, what's going on? Think of gestation like a baby. It's being formed. The Holy Spirit... It's literally working. Nicodemus says to him, you know, how, how can this be? How can a man be born? He's pushing back on this. And let me be very clear. Nicodemus knows the science of reproduction. He's got a basic understanding of that. Uh, that's not what he's asking. He, he, he knows it takes two to tango and the baby isn't the one that casts the deciding vote to be born. that exactly is his point. He's stuck in the mindset of what must I do to be saved? What must I do? What must we do as a nation to bring this Messiah in and overthrow Rome? And he can't fathom anything other than his strife, his works to be righteous. What he's saying is, what do you mean I don't have anything to do with it? For us... What do you mean it wasn't when I walked down that aisle? Didn't didn't Jesus see that and rejoice at my boldness? What do you mean it wasn't when I recited that prayer, bowed my head? Wasn't God proud of my humility? Friends, I said that prayer, I walked down that aisle and let me tell you, it was a long walk from up in the balcony out to the foyer. Had to pick which one of those really long aisles to go down that isn't what saved me and if you did that it's not what saved you it's the Holy Spirit giving birth to you we don't usher in our own new order Nicodemus is pushing back and Nicodemus knows the scripture and Jesus is pointing him to a myriad of scriptures to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, I will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. And Ezekiel thirty six twenty five: I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who gives this heart? It's Christ. It's God. Not us. Not Nicodemus. Not their work. Not their strict adherence to the law. Not our exquisite faithfulness and attendance to church and camps. this conversion, this birth comes from from God. Jesus first shows Nicodemus the futility of his striving and then shows him that this this life comes not from his works but from, from God. And now he's going to show him it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Truly, I tell you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is kind of sorting through a lot of things right here. Sometimes you walk into a conversation and all of a sudden it gets turned on you, and Nicodemus is at that point, it's like, whoa, getting a little bit more than I bargained for here. Turn with me if you can, or I'll read it to Ezekiel chapter 37. You're probably very familiar with this story if you've read the Old Testament. The hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and will cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, said a man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Nicodemus knew this scripture. Nicodemus knew the scripture, and I dare say he knew the scripture way better than most of us in our churches know. As Jesus is telling him in John 3 that you hear the wind blow and you don't know where it's coming or where it goes, he's going to this passage. Sometimes we read these passages in the Old Testament and other places. and I'm thinking, man, this is a weird story. Dry bones. What, why is this happening? I can assure you that Ezekiel was not looking at his word count when he included this. He wasn't looking like, man, if I don't get this word count up, I'm going to be a minor prophet. Who wants to be a minor prophet? I want to be a major prophet. Well, these events happened because God had a plan. He had a plan to show us, to reveal us, to proclaim his majesty and his glory so that we know that it is by His power and His hand that all these things happen. A lot of times we skip it. But these are the things when the Bereans and later in the New Testament, they dug in, they went back to look at the Scripture. May we be like the Bereans to see that it wasn't the prophet that gave these bones life. It, It wasn't the fact that he was an eloquent preacher. It wasn't the might or the power of the king or the government and it certainly wasn't some priestly vestment that gave life. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is appealing to this and he knows that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, one of the brightest minds of the day. And he knows that Nicodemus understands that this breath, it's, it's spirit, it's the spirit of God. Paul, he picks up on this in Ephesians 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work, these sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This work It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, it's very reassuring to me to know that it is the work of the Holy Spirit and not my efforts. Do you, as a Christian, ever struggle with your sin? Do you ever get frustrated? The stuff you do, the stuff that goes through your mind, the way you treat people, the things you say and do, I get frustrated with it. It's reassuring to me that my birth, my conversion, is a work of the Holy Spirit and not of me. John, the writer here, he's paid attention. And in his first epistle, he writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. The fact that you wrestle with your sin is a good sign. Nicodemus and the Pharisees are struggling to please God. but Those who are born of God, they'll hate their sin. They'll, they'll struggle with it. They'll know that they're Salvation is a work of God and not theirs. And to me, this is quite comforting and reassuring. It has been God that has given a new birth. Not not my passion, not my desire, not my choice, not my vote. But because God has put his seed in me, God has given me a heart of flesh. God has given you the heart of flesh. It gives you the desire to want to please him and that wrestle, that struggle. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you, making you in His image. It's not from your hustle. It's from the fact that you're born again. Nicodemus here, he's struggled with his futility and his striving. He's seen that it's not him, but it's God who's given life, and it's the Holy Spirit's work Jesus is now going to show him the next progression of this new birth. He will respond. Verses 9 to 15, Nicodemus says to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We can't be too astonished at Nicodemus. I mean, we have it too, right? It's right here. How often do we, do we miss it? We still have people today questioning the same thing. We have people that have been in church their whole life, and it saddens me, but I know it's, it's a reality that we have people in this very church that are asking the same question. Is that really it? Nicodemus wants more detail. He's like, this, this can't be it. There's more to it. Tell me more. Jesus tells him, no, it's, it's, it's right here. Like. There's an old saying that sometimes the, the smartest person in the room is the least smart person. Nicodemus thinks he's a pretty smart guy, but he's figuring out that he's not that smart. Jesus is pointing him back to, to Scripture. He tells him, I can't give you more than this. If you can't get this, you've got to know this. Head knowledge gets you nowhere. Nicodemus knew the scripture, but if you can't apply it, it does nothing, it's of no use to you. We know the scripture. Most of us have more Bibles in our homes than we have people. And that goes for people that aren't even saved. Paul picks up on this in Romans 1. He tells us that we know the truth, but we suppress it. pride from our learning, from our knowledge, from our accomplishments may cloud and overtake our need for humility and to repent and trust Christ. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, if you can't understand this new birth, brother, you're not going to get the Trinity. My incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, not even going to go with the second coming. But Jesus appeals to him one more time from the Scripture, this kind of funny story about a serpent on a pole. In Numbers 21, we see this story. This is the Israelites wandering through the desert from Egypt to the Promised Land. and live. A lot, a lot to talk about there. So first of all, where, where are they? This is towards the end of the Israelites' journey. They've already received the punishment to wander for 40 years because they didn't believe when the spies came back and they complained against God and told, All right, you don't think you can take the land? You're not going to go. Your kids will. Save the two that believed. Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron, his brother, are already dead at this point. Moses already struck the rock out of anger and disobedience and been told that he's not going into the promised land. So If you know the story, you know they're close. But here they are complaining again, and every time I read this, something else strikes me. They complained, we have no food, and we loathe this food. Like they're saying they have no food and complaining about the food they have. This seems kind of kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like they're complaining, and like all of a sudden, all these venomous snakes come and bite them and kill them. That's, that's a little, little harsh. Keep in mind, without going into a full exposition of, of this, these people deserve to be dead already. Their disobedience, continued disobedience against God. It's only an act of grace that He has sustained them. Here, he disciplines them to call them back. This is just a few short verses, and I think we get lost on it, that we can read this in just a minute, minute and a half, and we forget this isn't a five-minute event in history. They're wandering, they get to this place, sounds pretty miserable to me, and all of a sudden, fiery, venomous snakes are there. That tells me it's pretty painful. painful. As I was reading through this, it honestly reminded me of a story Jay was telling. He got stung by some flying insect that's one of the most painful there is in this area, and I I can't even imagine what this feels like. Not too many people here want to be around venomous snakes. We have some of those here in Oklahoma. When there's a snake, what do you do? I mean, a lot of us scream. (laughs) It's terrifying. They're in the midst of a den of snakes. And I don't even think that captures how many it is because they're in and around all the people. So what are you going to do if you're surrounded by snakes? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm looking at the ground. I'm looking for the snakes, and I'm looking how far I can get from them. If I'm lucky, I'm looking for something around me that I can start hacking them with. What what were they commanded to do here? They're told to look up. Look away from the snakes. Like, are you kidding me? You want me to look up? Like snakes blend into the ground really well. I might be able to notice motion if I'm not looking at it, but I'm not gonna see that. And keep in mind they're watching people die. Here, Nicodemus is given this story for a reason. We we know that this is a story that that points directly to Christ and the cross. Nicodemus doesn't know that yet. But he knows there's a promised one coming. Jesus is commanding him to, to look to the Christ, look to the promised one. And to believe. Just as those Israelites had to believe... And have faith, and that faith is what saved them. It may not surprise you as often as I've read, referenced it. I've just finished reading First and Second Chronicles, written about the history of, of Israel, and it was written after the exiles, a reminder to them as they returned to the Promised Land of all that had happened. I have no doubt that Nicodemus knew this very well. And I know that he uh, likely knew a verse that is probably being preached here in America in a lot of churches. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That verse was misused then as it is misused now. Nicodemus and the Pharisees thought, if we can just get our act together and act right, we saw that there was this wicked king, and he put idols in the temple. We worship the idols. God judged us. He promised if we repented, he would give us the promised land. So let's get rid of all the idols. Let's do all the right stuff. God's going to bless us. We'll be saved. His Messiah will come, overthrow Rome. Easy as that. Done. We just gotta get the people on board. And oh yeah, these pesky prophets wearing funny clothes are getting in our way. Nicodemus knew that there was a promise coming. And like a good Jew at the time, he looked down at the law. Okay, I gotta obey that one. Gotta sidestep that. Can't do that. That's wrong. That's a sin. What else do I need to do to avoid this judgment? What steps do I need to make to live? Here Jesus tells him, you're looking down at the snakes. You're looking down at the law. Look up. Look at the Christ. We look down at the sin. We look down at our circumstance. We look down at the things that will kill us. I can only stop doing that, if I could only do this better. Friends, you can't. We must look at Christ and believe. Jesus tells him very plainly that he must believe. And this is where so many people in today's American church, they want to skip to the next verse and say, it's about my decision. It's about my vote. It's like, we, we, we just missed this whole passage. The new birth isn't our action. It's not our obedience. The new birth comes from Christ, from God. So what if I'm sitting here and, like Nicodemus, and I don't know if this wind will blow, the spirit that gives life will come to me It goes where it wants, not where I want. The answer is right here in front of us. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus there in verse 15. Look to Christ and believe, and you'll have eternal life. Nicodemus was forced to respond here, and there's no deferring this choice. There's no putting it off. You either choose to believe Christ or you choose not to. There's no later. There's no middle ground. There's no I'll think about it. There's no let me go back and do some more research. You either choose to believe or you choose not to. Jesus took Nicodemus through four progressions within the new birth. There's a futile striving. We cannot be born on our own second that it is God who gives life third that it is the work of the Holy Spirit and fourth, that we must respond so what did what did Nicodemus do with this this passage goes on and the teaching goes on Nicodemus leaves he is mentioned later when Jesus is on trial and the Pharisees and the, the leaders are making a, a mockery of their own court system. It's Nicodemus who calls him out and says, we don't, we don't do trials this way. What happens? The other Pharisees ridicule him. He and Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus. In extra-biblical writings, there's other stories and accounts. We don't know if they're true, but in some, it shows that he was kicked out of the Sanhedrin, which is likely if they're at their biggest moment to get Jesus out of the way, and he's questioning them. kind of makes sense. There's other writings that When the persecution came, uh, as we read later in Acts, that he was killed, his family was starved. I, I don't know for certain if we'll see Nicodemus in heaven. My suspicion is that we will. But the more important question is, what do you do with this? when we see the new birth, when we talk about our conversion to Christ, do you see the glory of God? Do you see that this is a work of God and not a work of man? Do you see His incredible grace and mercy and power and love? Do you see that your effort is meaningless? It's in vain. You can't be born of yourself. you see the holy spirit's work if you're sitting in this room or listening you were not here by accident holy spirit's working now you see that you must repent turn to Christ believe in him follow him obey him Occasionally, you hear of a deathbed confession account of an atheist or famous person. Sometimes there's some wild tales of what they see, and sometimes there's screams of agony in their final moments. Don't hear of Christians saying on their deathbed, "Mm, oh, that was a mistake. Unfortunately, you don't have time to wait for that deathbed for that final moment you don't know when that will be it could be ten years from now it could be ten minutes from now because we're often kind of joke that we are in law and we don't know what's going to happen when we walk out of here this time is coming Yet your time to repent and turn to Christ is now. I don't know how. Well, here Jesus tells us, just just ask. If you're sitting in this room and you don't know how you can find any elder or any member and if you aren't a member and you're wondering who the members are, there's an easy way to find out. Just turn and point are you a member? They'll own it. They'll, they'll answer. Nicodemus came to Christ thinking that Christ would be a nice add on if he could only bring him in to the Pharisees and they could use him and they could achieve their goals. Friend, Jesus is not an add on, he's not something that makes your life better, makes your life complete, fills that emptiness, brings that joy that you're missing. Not a a little need a little Jesus in my life to get me through the day. You come to Christ, you're a new person, a new creation. As we read earlier, the, the old is gone. The new has come. You will face Him as Nicodemus did. You will face Him as a child of God or you will Face him in his judgment. I pray today that if you don't know him, you will turn to him. If you do know him and you're struggling, let this be a great assurance to you. Your salvation, your peace with God, it doesn't rest on your shoulders. It doesn't rest on how faithful you are. It doesn't rest on how many days in a row you read the Bible. I implore you to do that every day. It doesn't rest on how many books you read or how much you give to the poor or even how many people you share the gospel with. Well, these are all things we ought to do. We struggle and we know that we fail. Yet here we know that we are His child because we are born of Him, of His work, of the Holy Spirit's work. And that is a great assurance to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you for your work. We thank you for your gift of life. We thank you for so clearly spelling this out for us that we are not born of ourselves and we don't simply walk into your kingdom because we think we've read enough and prepared ourselves enough for it. But we are thankful that you give us life. Just as you made our physical bodies, you will give us a new heart. A heart that loves you, that seeks you, that desires you. And out of that desire, a heart of thankfulness to follow you in faithful obedience for your glory. Not ours. Not our works to save us, not our works to justify us, to keep tally of how good we are and keep us in check. But you prepare us to to glorify you, to spread your good news to those around us. And Father, I pray for those today that hear, that have not turned to you in Christ, that they will do right now. that we love you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the birth that you give us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.